right hand. <laughs> he does that so well, I'm telling you. Thank you, Marty. Okay, um, I thought it'd be useful before we jump off the cliff together into Revelation 4 through 22. We're now getting into a different section of Revelation. I'm going to go through some basic principles of biblical interpretation with you. There's probably been more uh, ink spilled on commentaries regarding the book of Revelation and more foolish commentaries on the book of Revelation, almost any of the book of the Bible. So I want to give you some tools to understand when you read, how to understand what you're reading and what the implication of what you're reading is. Let's go through some presuppositions first and foremost. There's some presuppositions you must understand before you open the Bible. Number one, there is a God who is there. And the God who is there is not silent, he has spoken. If you've never read Francis Schaeffer's book on that, it's absolutely spectacular. If you want a little empirical verification, read Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And verse 3 says, and God said, Boca. he spoke, right? Those are presuppositions. When you're reading scripture, you must understand that God is speaking to us. This is not a book of myths. This is not a book of human history. This is a book of divine revelation. God is a self-revealing God. We would not know God unless he revealed himself. He is not discoverable by human means unless he opens the door and reveals himself. He reveals us through his creation. He reveals us through his word. He reveals us through his prophets. And in these end times, he's revealed us through his Son, Hebrews 1, if you're looking for a cross-reference there. This is a direct quote uh, from uh, Chuck Missler. Uh, the Bible is an integrated message system. Critical you understand that. Where every detail, every number, every place name, every yacht, and every tittle has significance and purpose. There are no surplus words in the Bible. There are no extra words. The Bible is not short any words, Right? Which means everything that is there is there for a reason. Many times we are familiar with scripture and we go, and we just read it, but we don't, we don't comprehend it, we don't interpret it, because we don't understand that that word is there for a purpose. Every punctuation is there for a purpose. There's an old rabbinical belief system that when Messiah comes, he will not just interpret the words, he will interpret the punctuation, and he will interpret the spaces between the words. Right? Interesting thought. Jesus said, my word will not pass away until every yacht and every tittle, every detail will be fulfilled. So it's extremely important that we understand those details, Matthew 5.18. So everything in Scripture is done by design. Nothing is done by accident. The Bible is unique among all the works of literature in the world that it is the only book that is demonstrably sourced from outside our domain of space and time. It is an extraterrestrial original book, correct? God authenticates the supernatural origin of his word by writing history in advance. He tells us, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what's going to happen two, three, four hundred years from now, and then he makes it happen. If you're looking for a cross-reference on that Isaiah 46, Verses 9 and 10 is one of the things that we run into with people all the time. Is, well, this is just a book of a collection of stories. It's a collection of myths. It's a story of human tales. Oh, no, it's not. The Bible is unique in a scripture in the history of all literature in that it is the only book that has predictive prophecy throughout. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those prophecies have been fulfilled. So if you want to know where the authentication of this supernatural origin is, you study predictive prophecy and you don't have to read very far. And you see, oh, God said that was going to happen. When did he say that? 700 B.C. When did it happen? 700 years later. Over and over and over and over again. So you're reading the Word of God. Now, some suppositions. <clears throat> God intended the Bible to be understood. Correct? And he, under, he expected us to obey it. So when we read scripture, we have the privilege of thinking God's thoughts after him when we read this love letter. I want you to take a frame of reference. When you study God's word, what you really are is treasure hunters. You are treasure hunters who uncover God's eternal plans as well as his future actions. This book is about his future actions. And I've just revealed my hermeneutic right here. 
because I believe that Revelation 20, Revelation 4 to 22 is yet future. We're going to talk a lot about that here in about 20 minutes or so. So when you're looking for treasure, you need a plan, you need a map, and you need some tools if you're going to find that treasure. We're going to talk about that this morning. Looking for biblical treasure without a plan is like trying to find God's will for your life by closing your eyes and opening the Bible and putting a finger on the page. Right, you just randomly open Scripture, close your eyes, open Scripture, put your finger on the page. You heard about the guy who did that? First verse he landed on was Matthew 27, 5. Judas went away and hanged himself. Oh my gosh. He got a little concerned about that. He thought he'd try again, and he landed on Luke 10, 37. Go and do the same. <laughs> now he's really uptight, closes the Bible, flips the page, puts his finger on John 13, 27. What you are about to do, do quickly. <laughs> so it's extremely important that we have a strategy for study and not just a random look at finding what God has to say. So hermeneutics really is the principles of proper interpretation of literature, especially the Bible. Pastor Roger taught a class on basic hermeneutics here in 04. So some of the material you're going to be here if you were in that class, uh, I took good notes on that. So Rule number one, anytime you open the Word of God for anything, what's the first thing you should do? Pray. Pray for wisdom. Because your brain, and as brilliant as you are, and I know there are many brilliant people in this room, unless the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth, we will reliably not comprehend everything we should comprehend. John 16, 26 and John 16, 10, Jesus promised the Spirit of truth to guide us into all truth. 1 Corinthians 2 is another good chapter on that. All right, here's the golden rule of interpretation. The golden rule of interpretation is when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. David L. Cooper wrote that down. What that means is take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in light of related passages and fundamental truth clearly indicate otherwise. Here's the underlying thought. God means what he says and says what he means. The Bible is an open book. It is meant to be understood. God does not conceal things here and make them difficult. His point is that it would be understood, so he uses language that has meaning. Now, it doesn't mean Scripture doesn't have figures of speech. There's over 200 figures of speech in the Bible. But they are best understood by the author's intent, and context reveals those. When Jesus says, I am the door, I am the door, right? John 10. You immediately know that he does. He's not saying, I am wood, I am hinges, and I am a door handle, right? You understand that's a figure of speech, meaning I am the way. I am the way of salvation. So when figures of speech are there, they're pretty obvious. Now I want to give you three steps to understanding basic biblical truth. Number one, observation. Observation. When you read, what does the passage say? What are the facts? And by the way, you probably will not get that by reading it one time. Sometimes I read a passage over and over and over and over because I'm thick and I need to hear it again and see it again and read it again, okay? Number two, interpretation. What does the passage mean? We're going to talk a lot about what the passage means. The passage does not mean what you think it means. The passage means what God intended it to mean. There is a difference sometimes between what I think it means and what God says it means. We need to discern that. Application. What am I to do with what I now know? All right. Observation, interpretation, action. Observation. What does the passage say? What is the fact? Here's the point of observing the text. is to determine the intent of the author. Your goal is to determine the intent of the author. What did the author intend to convey when they communicate when they wrote that text? And here's a principle you should think about. I didn't give this one to Rob. Context is crucial in comprehending authorial intent. Context is crucial. Okay, I'll give you the second principle. This is another quote, I believe, from Cooper as well. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. A text, that's not my stuff. I wish I was this smart. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Now, you know what a proof text is. They may tell me, help me out, what's a proof text? 
a proof text is someone who says, Judas went out and hanged himself, go and do likewise, and what you do, do quickly. It is a verse taken out of context to prove a point. A proof text is amputating the text from its context. It is literally an amputation. And you destroy authorial intent at that point in time because the reader then is free to interpret the text they believe, not what the author intended. You will not understand authorial intent until you understand the context. Are you saying proof or proof? Proof. Proof text. You know, how many of you ever run into somebody and they're behaving in very, very bad behavior? It's obviously sinful, but they can quote a scripture verse that gives them freedom to do that. That's called a proof text. You know? I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And I think life for me, my happiness means putting a needle in my arm. Jesus obviously wants me happy. Smack is what keeps me happy. Let's use some, right? And by the way, God says I want to have abundant life. This is how I define abundant life. That's called a proof text. That's called taking a text out of context in order to prove what I want it to say. Right? That's clearly not biblical. Right? So context is that which goes with the text. Context is the environment or the setting. Now let me give you a picture. For a fish, the context is the lake or the stream that they live in. Correct? It's the environment, the surrounding. K. Arthur gives us a really good example. If I ask you, what does the word trunk mean? T-R-U-N-K. What does that word mean? If it's an elephant, it's a whole different idea. Could mean an elephant. What else could it mean? It's what you pack into a car. It could be storage. It could be the back of a car. That could be a trunk. Pardon? Bottom of a tree or the stem of a tree. What else is a trunk? It could be a path. Ever gone swimming in a trunk? Trunks? Yes? Right? It depends on the context that the statement is used in. You say, well, I don't know what trunk means until I read the sentence. The sentence is the context to help you understand what the word means based on authorial intent. What does the author intend that word to mean? And you only understand that from the context. So it's crucial, crucial that when you read the word of God, you just don't read a verse. You read in front of, you read behind it. If you were in church three or four weeks ago, Pastor Roger's been going through parables. He said something three or four weeks ago. He said, this particular parable Jesus told was in response to a question a Pharisee asked two chapters before. Well, if you don't read the two chapters before, you don't know why Jesus is telling the parable. You go, oh, what a cute story. Well, the cute story is there to answer a question or a deal with an accusation that the Pharisees had done two weeks ago. Or two chapters ago. Might have been two weeks ago, as far as I know. All right. Here's the principle. The best interpreter of Scripture is always Scripture. The best interpreter of Scripture is always Scripture. That's why you bring the whole counsel of God to bear on any particular verse. Last year, I gave you an illustration I stole from Donald J. Barnhouse. The Bible contains about 33,700 some odd verses. Think of a giant pyramid, the Pyramid of Giza, right? Giant pyramid. That pyramid is filled with all 33,000 verses. And you're studying one verse and you want to know what that verse means. You know what you do? You take that pyramid and turn it upside down. And you bring the whole weight to bear of that 33,000 verses of Scripture on that one verse. If you want to understand one verse, you bring all of the Bible, what the Bible says about that topic, to bear on that one verse. You know what that means? You need to know what the Bible says in order to understand that one verse. That's one of the purposes why we're here, because we want to know what God has to say. So you bring the whole counsel of God to bear on one verse under study. So how do you begin when you observe? We talked about observation. Number one, you read. You read the Bible routinely. You read the Bible regularly. You read the Bible repeatedly. How many of you ever read the Bible out loud? You should read the Bible out loud from time to time. Read it out loud so you can hear it. Listen to it on CD. Stream it. You just need to feed the mind with the Word and read it with a pen in hand. Underline stuff. Next week, by the way, Lord willing, we'll be in Revelation 4, and you're going to need to bring a pen. So bring a pen, a real fine pen next week. After you read, if you want to observe, you should ask questions. Right? Who, what, when, where, why, and how? Ask questions of the text. 
Who is the writer of the text? That would tell you some interesting things, right? Do you think Peter might have had a different point of view of life than Solomon? I would think so. Who is the audience? To whom is the letter written to? Critical you understand this author's writing to somebody for some purpose. Who's the writer? Who's the audience? What is happening? What are the main ideas? What is the purpose of the author? Is this an action set? It could be a drama. It could be a narrative. It could be poetry. We'll get into that in a second. For those of you that went to Israel or have been to Israel, the next question is pretty obvious. Where is this happening? Where is it happening? Geographically, where is it happening? On the map. If you don't have a map or you don't have an atlas, I strongly encourage you, when you're reading scripture, know where it's happening. That has an influence on it. What's the environment? What's the proximity? You know, it took me a while to figure out that, um, I know this is going to sound strange to you, but if something was 60 miles away in ancient Israel, uh, you just didn't get there this afternoon because you walked. Have any of you ever walked 60 miles to get someplace? I know you've hiked. No, I mean in order to get there. Because you had to get there. Just to walk 60 miles. They did that stuff routinely. How long did it take to walk 60 miles? Well, I did it in a week with the backpack. Okay. You know something? Nobody needed Fitbits back then. I mean, they didn't need it. You were just, you know, probably walking 12 to 14 miles a day. That's pretty average. Pretty average during that period of time. So when you know that, you say, oh, Jesus went from here to here. That's 23 miles away. If you have a map, you know that's 23 miles away. Oh, that's probably a two-day trip or a day and a half anyway, even if you're moving, right? So where is it happening geographically? What or when was it in history? When was this written in history? What was the culture? What was the politics? What was the economics? What was family life like, right? What were the culture rules going on? When was this written chronologically? Was it back-to-back, -back or is there gaps between? So who, what, when, where, and why? Why was there a need for this to be written? See, if you understand that everything God does has purpose, then anything you read in this book, you should be able to say, it's not here by accident. It's by design. So why did God inspire this author to write this book? Why did God inspire this author to write this chapter? It's here for a reason. You must understand why the need came to write this book, right? When you read the book of Philemon, you say, this is a book on reconciliation. The whole purpose was to appeal to Philemon to restore Onesimus back to fellowship. You must understand why it was written or you're not going to understand the purpose behind it at that point in time. And then how? How did this happen? How was it included? So after you ask who, what, when, where, why, and how, look at the grammar. Look at the grammar. I know you guys diagramming sentences. Do they still diagram sentences in school? Yeah. Okay, you still do. I guess it's useful. Yeah. What, are the word, what does the word mean? What does the word mean? I'm looking up word definitions all the time in the Greek. And by the way, I know no Greek and I know no Hebrew. But you know, you got a computer. You can type in definition of fill in the blank, redemption. There's lots of Bible dictionaries online. You want to find out what a word means? It's instant, right? You don't have to turn a page. Click, right? What's the syntax? What's the parts of speech? Where are the nouns? Where are the verbs? What's the action being taking place? I love connectors, the ands and the buts and the therefores. By the way, when you see a but in Scripture, what's that indicate? There's a contrast. In contrast to what just went on before, but now we got this, right? When you see the word therefore... You should look at it to see what it's there for. Because it's there for, because it's summarizing a prior thought, right? Da 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 da. Therefore, here's the conclusion. Now, if you're going to get the conclusion accurate, you know what you need to do? Read what was before, therefore. So you understand why the conclusion is what the conclusion is at that point in time. Scripture was written in three languages Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. I know none of them. You know none of them, most of you. But we have lots and lots and lots and lots of helps. Available. Okay. Can I put in a comment about that? I'm a ignorant person who only knows one language, and I never take the time to get into Greek at all. 
But if you, if you read the introduction to your Bible, it talks about how these groups of very smart people studied and conferred and agreed. And they picked the best English word in my case, because I have an English Bible. They picked the best English word they could, so it behooves me to get uh, American English Dictionary and look up some words. And it's amazing, just doing that sheds light on it. Mm -hmm. I would agree. If you don't know what the words mean, you know what you're going to do? You're going to draw conclusions that are faulty. You know what the word means. You're, in, you're bringing your meaning. When and who put the Bible together? Well, that, that's a whole other conversation. I'll get to that. Not today, though. Okay. The question was, who put the Bible together? We could spend it, and we're going to need to do that. Back to, uh, good question, Paula. Uh, back to basic observation. One of the things that's interesting is to note what's emphasized. How much space is given to a particular subject, right? You would assume that if there's more space given to a topic, it's more important. How many years did Jesus live on earth? 33. How many years of public ministry? You know how many actual days of his life are recorded in the Bible? 52. There's only 52 days recorded in Scripture of his life. Passion Week was the last eight days of his life, and the bulk of the Gospels are on the last eight days. What does that tell you? That was the important part of his life, right? The space that Scripture devotes to a particular topic indicates the value of the importance of that at that point. Five-sixths of the verses in the Bible, five out of six verses, have some connection to Israel. Five, six, what does that tell you? Israel is utterly central in God's plan for humanity. You cannot understand Scripture if you do not understand God's work through Israel. It's basic. Five, six of the verses in Scripture. Repetition. More repetition is more important. Have you ever read Psalm 119? Psalm 119 is 176 verses. Longest in the Bible. That author of Psalm 119 uses 10 different terms for the Word of God. He calls it the law of God, the commandment of God, the statute of God, the ordinance of God. 10 different verses, 10 different, different words used to describe the Word of God. He uses those terms 173 times out of 176 verses. What do you think the theme of Psalm 119 is? The Word of God. 173 out of 176 verses, I think that's a fair conclusion, right? I mean, one of the things I will say over and over again is observe the obvious. Observe the obvious. It, there's a lot of stuff here that's real obvious. Hebrews 11. What's Hebrews 11 all about? Faith. He uses the word faith or by faith 26 times in 40 verses. Just so you get it. Right? I mean, he repeats himself. When Scripture repeats something, he's telling you it's important. If you want a real clue in the Gospels to what's important, Jesus really helps you out. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. Right? You know what he's saying? Turn the hearing aid one notch. This is really important. Truly, truly. I mean, I'm telling you, it's important. Another basic point of observation, stated purpose. Does the writer state their purpose for writing? If you read John 20, 31, he says, I wrote this book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You want to know why I wrote the book? I just told you, right? Notice sequence. In Scripture, everything happens for a reason, and everything happens in order, for a reason. What comes before, what comes after? By the way, not everything is chronological. If you've ever read, you were with us a, few, a year or two ago, went through Daniel. Between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5, there's a little, little white space in your Bible, right? <laughs> A little white space? That's 23 years. There's a 23-year gap between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5. You need to know that. You're going, whoa, this, he was 23 years older in Daniel 5. Oh, yeah, a lot of history took place then. A lot of history. You won't understand Daniel 5 unless you understand the history took place between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5. Right? Look for cause and effect. Linkage. Look for comparisons and contrasts. Peter calls Christians newborn babes. He's trying to give you a picture, right? What do newborn babes crave? Milk. Milk. What should newborn Christians crave? The Word of God. In the same fashion, the same fashion. Jesus did that with Nicodemus, born again, right? All right, number two, interpretation. What does the passage mean? What does the passage mean? The basis for accurate interpretation is always diligent observation. Here's the principle. 
the one correct interpretation of a text is the one that mirrors the intent of the inspired author. You need to write this down because this is going to be very shocking for many of you. There is only one correct interpretation of every passage in Scripture. Only one. The one that matters is the intent of the author. The author wrote the book for a purpose and to communicate a specific message. I've gotten into it with some pastors who want to know better. Well, there's a lot of reasonable interpretations. There's not a lot of reasonable interpretations. There's one interpretation because God intended this message to communicate clarity and comprehension. And if you can make up the meaning as you go, then you don't need any words. I just make it up as I go. I think it says this. Oh, God hasn't intended here. He has a purpose. So you're going to discover the interpretation from your prior observation. The meaning of the text is always objective, not subjective. Which means when someone says, well, I think this is what the text means. I used to go to a small church and we had a little class after church called sermon discussion. Let me tell you what most sermon discussion is. It's called pooling of ignorance. <laughs> well, I think it means that. How much work have you done on that? Well, none, but I think it means that. Okay, let me tell you what that is. That is eisegesis. Eisegesis is to read into. Eisegesis is the, the reader brings the message, brings the interpretation themselves. I'm going to read into the text what I think it says. I think 2 plus 2 equals 5. To me, it can mean 4 to you, but it means that to me. Well, you get a real problem with inspired text meaning whatever you want. We believe in exegesis. Exegesis means to lead out of, to guide out of, which means the meaning of the text is based on the author's intent, not the reader's interpretation. Right? So when you come to church on Sunday morning, you know what you hear? You hear Roger and Phil and Andrew and every teacher here ex exegete the text, which means they explain it. And here's rule. You let the text speak, speak for itself. Let the text speak for itself. One of the things I have been convicted of over and over and over again, I can't tell you how many times during the course of every week, I'm just reminded, go back to the text. Go back to the text. Go back to the text. Read the text again. It's there. It's just we don't put the diligence in to understand it. Have you noticed that this is not cotton candy? This is filet. This is serious meat. Now, you, you, have to, you have to chew it. You have to cut it. You have to masticate it. I mean, it's work, but it's a treasure hunt. It's imminently worth it. So you let the text speak for itself. Lazy observation equals lousy interpretation. Faulty interpretation is usually as a result of inadequate observation. All right. So you've, you've got the facts. You know what the text says. You know what the text means. Most of the time, the interpretation follows the observation very logically. You don't have to work too hard. If you've done your observation homework, the text meaning will be pretty clear. And we're going to get a lesson in that next week when we go through Revelation 4, which is one of the most profound scenes in all of Scripture. Third part, application. What am I to do with what I know? What am I to do with what I know? Now, you know we close this class every week by saying what? Now that you know, go and do. That's called application. That's called application. I do my best to exposit the words so you know what it says and what it means, and then the application, I can't do for you. You apply what you know. It's the easiest part to do, but it's the hard, easiest part to know, but the hardest part to do because it involves surrender and obedience. You know, you can have the same text, you can have the same observations and the same interpretations. You may have very different applications. Because the Holy Spirit may be speaking to you from a text differently than your neighbor. Perfectly fine. You've got a need in your life that they don't have. The Lord may tell you that's what you need to do with this. You may be telling your neighbor that's what you need to do with that. Same thing. Basic questions that will help you in application. Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a truth to believe? Is there a promise to claim? Is there a command to obey? Is there an example to follow? All right. We, we could spend a lot more time on this, but I want to apply this very briefly to you uh, to look at a hermeneutical interpretation of Revelation 4 to 27. 
with Revelation 4, which we're going to open up next week, we come to the major fork in the road in interpreting Revelation. All systems of biblical interpretation have assumptions and presuppositions. They are the eyeglasses through which you view the world, right? Everybody has a set of eyeglasses on when it comes to looking at the world. Those eyeglasses are ground to a prescription, right? And they're your prescription to help you see clearly. Rose-colored glasses will give you a different perspective on the world than welding glasses, correct? Most of us have a hard time seeing through welding glasses unless you're looking at the sun. A microscope gives you a different perspective than a telescope, right? So we want to understand that we must have the biblical interpretation tools to apply to every text of Scripture, and this includes the book of Revelation. There are essentially four major approaches to interpreting Revelation 4 to 22. If you want to get more detail on this, Steve Gregg wrote a book, Revelation 4 Views, a Parallel Commentary, G-R-E-G-G, -G, Steve Gregg. I'll give you these four views, and I'm going to walk through them with you. The four eyeglasses through which viewing Revelation are, number one, preterism. P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-M. P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-M. Preterism. It's from the Latin. It means past. The basic belief system of preterism is that all the prophecies in Revelation were filled in the past with the destruction of Jerusalem. The fundamental belief of preterism is that every prophecy in Revelation 4 to 22 has already been fulfilled. They're all past. There are no prophecies yet to be fulfilled. That's a point of view. Second major point of view, historicism. Historicism. H-I-S-T-O-R-I-C-I-S-M. Historicism. It says the prophecies in Revelation have been fulfilled and are being presently fulfilled by major events of Christian history spanning all the way from the period of John the Apostle to the present day, to the coming of Jesus, rather. They include all the way to the coming of Jesus. So they're basically saying all the prophecies, Revelation 4 to 22, began to be fulfilled with John, were fulfilled throughout church history, being fulfilled today, and we will be fulfilled until Jesus comes a second time. That's historicism. The third one is futurism, the futurism. The belief system of futurism is that all the prophecies in Revelation 4 to 22 are going to be fulfilled in the future. They have not been fulfilled yet. They're going to be fulfilled in the future prior to the second coming of Christ. That's futurism. I'm going to do more detail on this so you'll see these again. Now, number four, idealism. The prophecies in Revelation have a timeless fulfillment. Revelation only describes general spiritual truths. General spiritual truth, great themes, but no specific fulfillment. All right, let's dive in a little bit into deep water. Idealism. Idealism says that the, ref the prophecies in Revelation have no specific fulfillment. There's no historical fulfillment. There's no future fulfillment. They're, in essence, they Revelation is just about general themes and timeless truths and it's, it's much more of an apocryphal, symbolic, non-literal way of looking at Revelation. All right? Now, I'm going to walk you through all four of these, and then I'll tell you what I think, and I have, I'm fairly passionate about this. But I have to tell you up front, there's many competent scholars who look at Revelation from all these four points of view. Now, I think three out of the four are stupid, but that's just Brad's opinion. <laughs> it's just my opinion, right? And I'm not a serious scholar. I am a serious student, but I'm not a scholar. So when you look at this, you have to come to it with a significant degree of humility. But your hermeneutic will dictate your interpretation. You know, I've already opened my hand here, I very much believe in a literal hermeneutic of Scripture. A literal hermeneutic of Scripture, which says God says what He means and means what He says. You don't have to go looking for meanings and hidden and story. I mean, He's pretty clear, right? Literal. When God speaks, He speaks. All right, let's talk about the preterist approach. The prophecies of Revelation were fulfilled in the past with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Preter, I already said, past. All the prophecies have already been fulfilled. Now, there are two schools of thoughts within preterism. One is partial preterism and one is full preterism. Yeah, I, I know we're getting a deep in here. Partial preterism says that almost all the prophecies in Revelation were fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem 
or the fall of the Roman Empire, but Jesus Christ is yet to come. So the second coming is yet to come. Partial preterism will tell you that. Now, full preterism tells you that every prophecy and revelation has already been fulfilled. All fulfilled in the first century. A full preterist will tell you that Jesus has already come, spiritually. There will be no future bodily resurrection of believers. Now, you don't have to look at this very long to go, this is obviously heresy. Full preterism is obviously heresy. Full preterists believe that we are now living in the eternal state. And the new heavens and the new earth are here and now. I'm so disappointed. Yeah. So John wrote the revelation only to the church of his own day, and his only purpose was to encourage them to endure Roman persecution because there's no elements of revelation that have any future bearing at all to the full preterist at that point in time. Now, they state... They base most of their interpretation on the passage where Jesus says, he uses the word at hand, shortly, soon, I'm coming soon, I'm coming shortly, my, my coming is going to be at hand, and they interpret that to mean one generation. He said he was coming in one generation, one generation's 40 years, he had to come by 70 A.D. But the Greek word of the word soon is quickly, not really soon, so it shows a failure in their interpretation and going back and understanding the context of the word soon. That would be, I would agree with that. Dan says they haven't done their Greek homework. They will interpret soon and shortly different than what you and I might interpret soon and shortly, obviously, at that point. So it basically says that they wrote Revelation, John had to write Revelation prior to 70 A.D., because all of Revelation 4 to 22 is just about the fall of Jerusalem. Destruction by Titus Vespasian in 70 AD. Now there's some problems with this view. Biggest problem is the lack of a consistent hermeneutic. They go back and forth from a literal interpretation to a symbolic interpretation. If they can find something literal, they'll say it. If they can't, they'll create symbolism. Well, it must mean this. It may mean that. The full preterism obviously has some biblical problems because it denies predictive prophecy. It says, there is no predictive prophecy here. All of them have already been fulfilled. It denies global judgment. This, when you read Revelation, it's obvious that those prophecies impact the entire world. Preterism says all those judgments came on Jerusalem in 70 AD, period. And you're going, what about the whole world? This is the whole world multiple, multiple times. Clearly, you can't buy that view if you think that's true. It also denies reality. If we're living in a perfect, sinless new heavens and new earth right now, then Jesus was a liar. Because this is a sinful joint, in case you haven't wondered, right? Revelation predicts a complete victory over sin, and that obviously has not occurred. So, needless to say, I reject preterism. Number two, the historist approach. It basically says it surveys all of history. Revelation is symbolically recording all the major events of Christian history from John's time to the present using visions. For example, a person that bought this historic viewpoint would say that the seven seal judgments represent the fall of Rome. Represent the fall of the Roman Empire, I'm sorry. Fall of Roman Empire. They would say the seven trumpet judgments, which come after the seven seal judgments, represent the invasion by the Vandals, the Huns, the Turks into Western Europe. So they're going to try and lock on an actual his historical event and tie it to a specific prophecy in Revelation. The seven bold judgments in Revelation represent God's judgment upon the Roman Catholic Church. So this polemic, by the way, a historical approach, is an anti-Roman Catholic polemic because every one of them makes the papacy out to be the Antichrist. Everybody in this particular viewpoint says the papacy is the Antichrist. Now, not surprisingly, many reformers bought this. Huss, Luther, Wycliffe, Knox, Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, Matthew Henry, George Whitfield, all of them were in the historist camp. And there's lots of their commentaries out there today because they viewed all of life through the lens of the Roman Catholic Church is the Antichrist and we are the reformers etc. So that was the lens that guided their thought process. Now remember, there are some problems with that. When you shoehorn future predictions into a specific uh, historical events, it gets very subjective and very speculative. One of the things you should always look for when you're looking at a system of biblical interpretation is, is it consistent? 
If I have to create rules that don't make common sense in order to explain something, that would tell you that maybe there's something wrong with that system of interpretation. As a matter of fact, the historists, there's over 50 different interpretations of Revelation just within that system alone, which means every author's got their own point of view. Well, you look and you go, God is not a God of confusion. If there's 50 different points of view, what can we assume? Well, at least 49 of them are wrong, and maybe all of them are wrong, because they contradict each other in some pretty basic kinds of things. Now, what this group does in order to make prophecy work, they have what they call a year-for-a-day principle. So anytime Revelation says five months, that's 150 days, by the way, 30-day months, 30-day calendar, they would say, well, that's not five months, that's not 150 days, that's 150 years. Every time Revelation says a day, they really mean a year. Well, how do you know that? Well, we just decided that we're going to substitute a day for a year. So when half the tribulation says it's going to take 1,260 days, they say, well, that's 1,260 years. Problem is, if you really consistently apply that formula, you have a real problem with the millennium. The millennium is 1,000 years, which is 360,000 days. So they would say, well, a millennium lasts 360,000 years. Even none of them buy that. They go, well, we got we to interpret that a little differently. Well, when you start changing your, your hermeneutic to try and justify your point of view, you say, mm, I don't think that makes sense. See, God uses very objective language when he describes things. You need to know that. All right, moving right along. The futuristic approach. Everything after chapter 3 in the book of Revelation is yet future. Which means from Revelation 4 and following has not yet occurred. Now, I gotta, I'm, I'm careful here because 4 and 5, in fact, are presently going on. John saw that. So that is present. But let's say 6 through 22 has not yet occurred. The futurist approach believes that these events listed in Revelation 4 to 22 or 6 to 22 will be fulfilled immediately before and following the second coming of Jesus. The futurists believe that Revelation 6 through 19 covers a seven-year period of trials called the Great Tribulation. It's divided into two sections, three and a half years. Mid-trib, there's something happens, and then the last half of the Tribulation, another set of events occur. Christ returns in chapter 19, reigns on earth for a literal thousand-year reign on earth in chapter 20. That's the most controversial chapter in all the Bible, by the way, is Revelation 20. It's the only time... In Scripture, where the thousand-year reign is detailed and creates a new heaven and a new earth in chapters 21 and 22. Futurism depends on a consistent application of literal interpretation. You have to say, I'm interpreting this literally. When God said five months, he means five months. When God says ten days, he means ten days. He doesn't mean ten years. He says what he means, and he means what he says, right? The more literally you interpret scripture, the much more likely of a futurist you will be in terms of your understanding of revelation. That has not yet occurred. You know, the seven trumpet judgments, just for example, you look at Revelation 8. It says that one-third of the earth is going to be burned up, one-third of the sea becomes blood, one-third of the fresh water is made undrinkable. Now, if you take scripture literally, you have to believe that's in the future yet, right? Because there's been no historical documentation that one-third of the sea has been turned into blood, one-third of humanity has been, right? We don't have any history that says that's occurred in the past. But if you approach Revelation from a preterist point of view or a historist point of view, you go, it's got to mean something else. I mean, I can't take this literally because clearly there's been no history of one-third of the ocean turning to blood. So I have to interpret this thing symbolically. I can't interpret it literally because history would make me a liar. I mean, there's no history of this happening. Yeah. <laughs> it's not quite a third of the ocean, but anyway. <clears throat> so if you, don't, if you believe that revelation has been fulfilled in the past, which is the first two, you have to interpret these prophecies non-literally. You have to allegorize. You have to make symbolics. We have zero evidence of their occurrence at that point in time. The vast majority of early church fathers held to a future interpretation. Justin, Martyr, Arrhenius, Hippolytus, Victorinus, etc., etc. Today, the futurist interpretation is the mainstream evangelical interpretation. All right? Charles Ryrie, John Walvoord, Hal Lindsley, J. Vernon McGee, Chuck Swindoll, David Jeremiah, John MacArthur, almost all of your evangelical 
pastor, teachers, theologians would tell you it seems if you take a literal view of Scripture that all of this is in the future. And it's going to be critical that you're clear on how you're looking at this because we're going to open this over the next few months. It's going to be interesting. Okay, last one. The idealist approach. It says there's no literal fulfillment at all. We only talk about transcendent themes. This is a very much a non-literal, allegorical, symbolical, poetical, spiritual look at Scripture. This group is comprised of many, 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 many people with different points of view, but they all will tell you the same thing. They do not believe in a literal, specific fulfillment of prophecy. If you've got a problem with that, then you're calling God a liar. So clearly, some of these points of view are heretical. There's no doubt about that. They would say... Um, Revelation has nothing to do with past historical reality or future fulfillment. It just is the grand themes of good over evil, Christ conquering Satan, the church versus the world, the city of God versus the city of Satan. Um, th this is a little bit pie in the sky by and by, lots of blue sky, but not much feet on the ground at that point in time. Every specific prophecy in Revelation, in this point of view, whether it's coming battles, judgments, uh, plagues, cosmic disturbances, a lake of fire, Christ's messianic kingdom, they're all symbolic. They're all symbolic. The problem with it, all of that stuff is, who makes up the meaning then? Well, if it's symbolic, I guess I can make it up as I go. If you can make it up as you go, then having this written in comprehensive language makes no sense. Why would God write this in clear, concise language with intended purpose and meaning if he didn't intend you to understand it that way? Right? God is not a God of confusion. God is a God of order. God is a God of comprehension and clarity. So he writes with the expectation that we will understand what he means to say, and we will not have to create the meaning as we go at that point in time. So Clearly, I believe a literal hermeneutic is by far the most accurate method for uncovering biblical truth, and it's all equally clear that I subscribe to a futuristic interpretation of Revelation 4 to 22. Now, I'm sure there are people with a lot higher IQ that might dispute that, but you cannot interpret Revelation with a different set of eyeglasses than you interpret the rest of the Bible. If you're going to read scripture, you have to read it with the same set of eyeglasses. Either God means what he says, and you take it literally, or you don't. You cannot simply say, well, I don't understand what it means, therefore, I think it means that. That's intellectual, that's dishonest. It, yeah. I think that's absolutely true at that point in time. So it's extremely important that you're very clear on your hermeneutic, which means the way you're going to view it. All right, we're going back to the golden rule of interpretation. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Which means, it doesn't mean God doesn't use figurative language, but you are never left having to create the meaning. You should always ask yourself, what was the intent of the author in writing this book? What was the intent of the author? There is an intent. The author wants to communicate something specific and is comprehensible. We use a three-step process for Bible study. One, observation. What does the passage say? Sometimes we may have to read it 15 or 20 times in order to understand what it says. Right? Read with a pen in your hand. Next week, bring a pen. I'll give you just a clue. If you want to know what Revelation 4 is about, I want you to underline how many times the word throne shows up. That would be a real clue. When God repeats the word throne like 13 times in 11 verses, you might have an idea that he's, he's interested in talking to you about throne. Right? So just pretty obvious stuff. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text, which means read the passage. Ideally, read the entire book so you understand how that chapter fits into the book. Right? You want the whole counsel of God brought to bear on the text in question. Number two, what interpretation? So observation number one, number two, interpretation. What does the passage mean? There are not 50 correct interpretations of a passage. There might be 50 applications. There may be as many applications as there are people. That means, God, what are you talking to me about here? But there's only one correct interpretation, and that interpretation is what the author intended for you to understand by that. God doesn't have a problem communicating. We have a problem obeying. And by the way, we've talked about this too. Your morality will dictate your theology. 
<clears throat> I've seen people, well-respected authors, change their viewpoint on Scripture so fast it makes your head swim and you go, whoa, 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 where's the moral failure? Sure enough, so-and-so had an affair six months ago. They're trying to cope with their guilt. So instead of confessing it to the Lord, I've got to change the way I view Scripture, and now I'm going to justify. And you've all seen this. This is human nature. It's human nature. I'm sorry, but that's the way human nature is. We should be bringing us before the Word, not trying to change the Word. <clears throat> the best interpreter of Scripture is always Scripture. One of the best things you can possibly do, if there's a key word in a passage, get you a Bible, a treasury of Scripture reference, and find out how many of the places the Bible uses that word. I mean, if you're studying, you know, redemption, ah, it would be good to do a word study on redemption. You might find several dozen, hundred other places in Scripture where he uses the word redemption. So what's he saying about redemption there? That's light. That's light for you to understand with. Lastly, application. Observation, interpretation, application. What am I to do with what I know? We jump into application far too quickly. Many times we're not willing to do the homework on the observation side before we get to the application side, right? You only, when you actually have done your homework on observation interpretation, it's real simple to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? You know something? He's got something for you to do. You don't have to look very far for that. Then the question is, am I willing to do it at that point in time? Am I willing to do it? Okay, just briefly, four schools of thought. Preterism, all the prophecies were fulfilled in the past and the destruction of Jerusalem. Historicism, prophecies are being fulfilled from John's time to Jesus' second coming, with an anti-Catholic polemic being the central theme. Futurism, all prophecy are to be fulfilled in the future prior to Jesus' second coming. That would require a literal hermeneutic. It's the only one that requires a literal hermeneutic, by the way. And lastly, idealism. There is no literal prophetic fulfillment, only transcendent themes and principles. All right. As we go through now, in the coming weeks, Lord willing, you will be looking at these verses and you will say, hmm, what do I observe? How do I understand that? What am I to do with that? What's the frame of reference here? When you read Revelation, by and large, read it literally just like you do the rest of the Bible. When Jesus told the church, he said, you're going to have tribulation for 10 days. How many days do you think that means? 10. I've had, well, it means 10, uh, 10 emperors of Rome. It means 10 years. Well, I think it means 10 weeks. Well, um, God didn't stutter here, right? He said what? 10 days. So by and large, I mean, there's figuratively language. We've already talked about that. But by and large, when God says it, it's true. It's accepted as it is and get on with it. All right. So far, so good? I, I didn't mean to, to spend a lot of time on this, but I wanted to give you some tools as you, we look at it. It's admittedly very complicated passages in the next few months. I want to give you a handle on how to be able to look at that. So far, so good? All right. Now that you know, do.